From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you WorldPay sells to FIS for $35 billion, Alipay does a thing with Barclaycard, and a German bank lets its customers decide its dress code. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 307 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in Devonshire Square, London. I'm David Breer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, Jason Bates. How's it going, Jay? Very well. How are you? I am good. I, like, I'm struggling to get words out, which is going to be a real interesting one on this podcast. But other than that, I've had a fun week. Well, it should be a fun podcast then. Uh, well, <laughs> for us, maybe not for, for the poor, poor listeners. How about you? What, what have you been up to this week? Uh, a couple of workshops, uh, insurance company, and um, insurance. a big, a big uh, government thing. Um, yeah, really interesting. Really a uh, good, good week. Very good. Okay. And as always, we're not alone. So this week, we are joined by some lovely, lovely guests. So first up, making her sixth news appearance. Like we're going to have to get you a, a plaque and uh, something uh, something to sort of commemorate this occasion. Uh, <laughs> Caroline Plum, CEO of Fluidly. How's it going? Great. Thank you. How are you? I am very, very good. Yeah. I'm I'm about a beer in before the podcast. So that's, like, that's probably why it's going to be a difficult one. But, uh, but um, <laughs> sounds like you've been having a busy week. Yeah, it has been a busy week, actually. We've been thinking about the Banking Competition Remedies Fund and uh, all Free sorts money, of exciting yo. things like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been busy. Well, after seeing that first pool come out, everybody's like, I know, oh, it's man. Good. Yeah, like, seemed like a good idea now, doesn't it? Yeah, like, suddenly. Oh. It was like Leicester City winning the Premiership. Suddenly everyone thinks it's possible. <laughs> and it's like, hold on, small players can do it as well. I'm in. Yeah. yeah, Norwich City next year, up in the Premier League. <laughs> Come on, boys. I can't cope with football analogies. All right. All right. And uh, next up, making his debut, we have Simon Balmain, who is a community specialist at Monzo. How's it going? Good, good. It's nice to be here. Do I get a plaque as well? I think you will. You get stickers at least. I mean, Perfect. like after six, Perfect. you get a plaque. After eight, you get really, something really special. Is this so, formalized? Like, Do we have like a league table going on? Pretty much. Oh, I think Ted and are definitely on that. So, uh, but uh, anyway, <laughs> welcome to the show, guys. Uh, really good to kind of have you guys on board and um, hope we're going to have some fun. All right, let's get on with the news this week. So first up, we have a story that is WorldPay sells to FIS and uh, changes its tech stack, which is super, super interesting. So this is over on the BBC. WorldPay payments firm sells for $43 billion, which is a lot of money. Just saying, just in case you like, don't tell me, don't try and make me tell you how many zeros that is, but it's definitely a lot of zeros. So uh, WorldPay has been bought by Fidelity National Information Systems. So that's FIS for $35 billion in cash and shares. Uh, WorldPay was sold by RBS in 2010. Uh, I don't think we've got the amount, but it definitely wasn't $43 billion at the time. <laughs> that's was it? Yeah. yeah, that was my, I think it was 2, 2.2, 2.3, something along those lines. Um, man, what do you guys think? This is kind of crazy. Yeah, Deca well, Unicorn time. It's, it's just uh, huge. It's interesting how something that came from one of the big banks, you know, everyone got rid of their payment processing. Everyone said, this isn't something we want to own. We'll, we'll move it off to the side and, and, you know, it lives somewhere else. And then, like, payment, the internet happened, payment processing took off, and suddenly, you know, the, the th- little thing they sold off is worth 
is what you know is worth a, what a big bank is worth. Yeah, about the same as a parent, right? Yeah. Now. Well, it, it sort of sucks on this one because if you look at so back in two thousand and nine, the European Commission said RBS would have to sell its World Pay business uh, as part of the condition for approving state aid to the bank. So it's one of those ones that now uh, you know we were sort of saying about this beforehand, and I've seen a lot of social about it, but it's like maybe like the government made them sell the wrong bit essentially like if the government have kept world pay 43 billion <laughs> uh rbs not that i'm just saying you know yeah but maybe if it would have been maybe then rbs would have been worth like 100 billion and then world pay would have not been worth anything <laughs> potentially maybe it's about yeah. the owners but maybe well although you kind of think that advent and bain capital who bought the business in 2010 must have got a really good deal you know, you know, it's a forced fire sale. Mm. I'm sure they picked it up cheap. They must have been delighted. And they probably, being private equity, it would have all been debt anyway. So how much of their own risk did they take? You know, and Almost I think, uh, none. Yeah. Um, I imagine many a cigar has been smoked this week. But uh, <laughs> um, the other thing that I found interesting on this one, if you don't uh, follow Nick Ogden on LinkedIn, he actually posted a, uh, a picture of the original uh, Bank Partnership Program for WorldPay Limited. The internet created a global market, but the world doesn't have a single currency. So this is the original business plan written back in 1997 for WorldPay. So amazing. From 1997 to a £43 billion company. Pretty impressive. There can be many better returns. Not at all. What do you think, Simon? It sounds to me like uh, it's very conditional. The thing about them changing their tech stack is a big part of it. I think... I mean, they say it's RBS technology, but isn't it actually NatWest technology? So it's even older than that. Uh, it sounds to me like this is something that was in the works for a while. And then they've obviously demonstrated the fact that they could build something new, as well as the other news about the integration, that I guess we're going to talk about. It sounds to me like these were two conditional parts of this deal. But I think when you have a company like Stripe and their trajectory, it's like anything. It, it, it increases the value mm. of everyone else in that space. It's like if Monzo does really well, Starling gets customers, Revolut gets customers in every other way. Mm. So rising it's, tide floats all boats. Exactly, exactly. So it seems to me that you know we really haven't seen a trajectory like Stripe. I mean, it's really unprecedented in the amount of time they did it. And some people who were at WorldPay were looking at that thinking, this, this is going to help us. And now we see the result of that. Well, that, that other part that you mentioned that, so this is uh, sort of news that's just come out, uh, I think today, actually, which is WorldPay becomes first acquirer to enable Amazon Pay. So I want, do you think that's the case then, Simon, that this is, you know, yeah. now that that news is out, it's like, well, we can get all the good news out. Well, exactly, exactly. And I, I think, you know, WorldPay, I don't think that people were looking at them as like a tech first company for a while. So in order to get a valuation like that and a sale like that, you have to demonstrate that you can partner with a really big tech company and it doesn't get much bigger than Amazon. It's like once you have one of those, you can go and talk to the rest and get the rest. Mm. It's like at Monzo, we recently did our like flex thing. And for a while, they were like working with small kind of retailers and then they got KFC. And now they can go out to like any big retailer and be like, look what we're doing. Mm. Mm. Um, I guess the other interesting thing on this is FIS are spending money like ridiculous like you know this is a big mostly known for core banking systems provider who are spending 35 billion dollars buying another company that is pretty amazing clearly lots of money in core banking systems that's good to hear but there's something there was something buried in this around the fact that they'd spent 33 million last year on extricating its systems and overall had spent 450 million pounds on the platform today with a further 100 million to be invested that's not 
modern tech stack size of spending. So I do worry a little bit that, great, they bought something of scale and of size, but is it ever going to be able to compete with the the new nimbler players with, you know, very modern approaches and very modern tech stacks? Because spending over, what, 600 million over a few years is a big old spend for any modern technology company all that COBOL is really expensive to rewrite well, that, well, that's, well that's the thing this is a this is a um, almost a, a you know a critical part of in, the infrastructure that's been built in big banks it was just separated in the way that an iceberg separates from another big iceberg um, so it's not it, the fact that they're having to spend that amount of money is actually the the, the depths of the this the, the problem essentially so I, I can't remember anybody ever sort of describing uh it sort of upgrades to this system as like extricating before. That sounds almost <laughs> archaeological, doesn't it? It's an interesting one. You could just rebuild the whole thing from scratch and switched it over. Sure. And we could have had a bloody good party at the end of that <laughs> one as well. All right. Moving on. So next up, we have a story, which is Alipay does a thing with Barclay Card. So over on Fintech Futures, we have Barclay Card brings Alipay payments to UK retailers. So Barclay Card has partnered up with Alipay to allow retailers to accept Alipay transactions in store across the UK. I feel like I said Alipay a lot there. Mm. Like, <laughs> I feel like we're being more times. Yeah. Uh, I, this is where I can announce Alipay. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really. I'm just joking. All right. This follows a pilot over the last two years that will now enable UK retailers to accept payments from Chinese visitors. So this is something that I think has been talked about for a long time. Like the, you know, the power of Chinese tourism and actually the, the sort of weight on that on uh, the, the global sort of system and actually are people being forced to accept these things? Because if you go to anywhere, like New York taxis accept uh, Apple Pay, Alipay mm. and like um, Amex now. It's just like, it's amazing that it's everywhere. But, you know, is this the, the sort of continual march from China to domination globally? I think it's a bit of a sort of chicken egg thing because I remember the first time I saw a major retailer with Alipay, like promotional stuff in the store. I'm pretty sure it was Holland and Barrett. And I don't, I don't know if it's, I know it's really, it seems really random and I don't know if it's a little bit of confirmation bias, but at the same time, I also noticed that there was a lot of Chinese people in the store at the same time. So you're like, know, market like, research yeah, done. Exactly. <laughs> like, are they, well, are they offering Alipay because they had a lot of Chinese people shopping in the store or did they have a lot of Chinese people in the store? Well, there, there was a, a 2018 Nielsen survey that said 93% of Chinese tourists say that they would spend more in a store and that 60% of merchants are Adopting Alipay said they'd clearly seen a growth in foot traffic and revenue. So, from a business model, uh, you know, a business a revenue perspective for big chains, especially the high end prestige brands, I'm guessing. Like Holland who, and Barrett. I like Holland and Barrett. <laughs> Uh, you know, they're, they're, they, there's a good good uh, story behind actually how much does this cost to implement and across all of your stores and chains, you know, here we go. But it is part of that, you know, this is the beginning of the end, people. You know, this, <laughs> this is suddenly we've got something with billions of users in China, massive growing ecosystem with a business case where they can say to Western providers, you guys should really accept this. Like stage three of this plan is launching Alipay for everyone in the West. You know, mm. Because once everyone accepts it, you know, Alipay isn't a, isn't a bank, it's a scheme. You know, they run essentially their own rails as well as all of the financial services behind that. So it's a big lever for mm. these billions of people in order to, to leverage a, you know, to, to leverage against MasterCard, Visa, Amex, a whole new 
play with a, uh, you know, a, a set of financial services attached where they don't have to pay interchange, where they're not having to pay fees. They run the whole thing themselves. So it's just a wedge. It's strategy. a wedge. It's a thin Get wedge. In. Yeah. Wow. I find this whole sort of s- this culture of a, a super app really interesting as well because it's like not just Alipay but WeChat as well. You know, mm-hmm. we have a big Chinese community in Birmingham where I live and my cousin, she hosts Chinese students. They all have Alipay on the front page of the phone. They all have WeChat mm. and they do basically everything, every service that these apps offer, which is a ton of stuff. Mm. Taxis, you know, the Uber equivalent, everything. It's essentially a proxy operating system. It's a proxy app store. It's like, okay, I've got my Android phone, I've got my iPhone, and there's all the apps there. But on top of that is WeChat, which has its own you know, app store and ecosystem. So, uh, which I think is why, you know, iPhone and Google, uh, Apple and, and Google don't, just don't have the leverage in China because this proxy layer mm-hmm. is really where it all lives. You know, they built up from the hardware to the operating system. And in the West, Apple's like, great, we'll charge everyone 30%. They just don't have that leverage in China. And WeChat and Ali, you know, Ali do. Well, it's it's a big number as well. So Visit Britain is expecting 483,000 visits from China in 2019. And that's a 43% rise for, since 2017. So that's pretty impressive. Um, we, <laughs> Fall of the pound. Well, well exactly. Prob- very likely. <laughs> as in it's cheaper to come over here and yeah, potentially. Um, we actually managed to speak to Tao Tao, who is the Alipay's business development director, to find out what's been going on with this partnership. Hello everyone, many thanks to 11FS for having me. My name is Tao, I am the BD Director of Alipay. The reasons of Barclaycard's partnership are very obvious. Barclays has great merchant base in the UK. By partnering with Barclaycard, it's a logic step for us to offer Chinese tourists a seamless digital payment experience when traveling to the UK. By offering Alipay payment method, Barclays will not only diversify the merchant services from traditional card payments, but also generate additional revenue stream. So how the partnership works? To expand on the partnership specifics, the agreement will enable UK retailers to accept in-store Alipay payments without replacing their existing point-of-sale system. Retailers will also benefit from being at the fingertips of hundreds of millions highly engaged Alipay users, who will be able to search for outlets near their location, find out brand details, and whether there are many discounts available. For UK merchants, the benefits of this partnership is very clear. By accepting Alipay, one of the world's most used super app, they will be able to capitalize on the growing numbers of Chinese tourists to use mobile payments over cash, based on the recent Nielsen report. 93% Chinese tourists said they would like to spend more in a store that accepts mobile payments. Among the merchants surveyed that had adopted Alipay, nearly 60% said they had seen growth in both foot traffic and revenue. For Chinese tourists, this new agreement offers them traveling in the UK, the familiar mobile payment and a cashless, cardless lifestyle experience that they enjoy at home, as well as Alipay's competitive real-time foreign exchange rate. So what will be the next? As a result of booming Chinese tourism, we're working with a number of partners globally to help global businesses benefit from this trend. Our strategic partnership with Barclays is another step in this direction, aiming to help connect more UK and European retailers with Chinese tourists. 
So in this near future, we are always considering future partnerships that will enable local businesses to better connect and engage with the mobile savvy Chinese consumers. Thank you very much. I, for one, welcome our new Chinese overlords. I just want to, uh, to make that clear. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's super interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, being in a situation where essentially, and, and it, was, it was fascinating because it's not just payments, it's about the integration of all of those social services. So being in a situation where actually they, they're able to direct people yeah. to particular offers or particular shops based on the level of integration, that's, that, you know, it's smart on their part, right? Yeah, and you can get monitored by the Chinese government. <laughs> there is that too. Well, it's interesting as a political angle to this, because obviously in the US, we've seen a big pushback against telco companies and putting their 5G technology into the US. At what point do, does the UK or any any government say, well, actually, if, if suddenly Ali is getting a lot stronger and is, is pushing through a lot of payments, is this going to be a problem in, in terms of that uh, kind of macro global economics thing? Yeah, I mean, I have no doubt that uh, Alipay can probably completely monopolize the market of Chinese tourists that come to the UK and students and things like that. But where do they go after that? If What's the bigger plan after mm-hmm. that? How do you how do you convince non-Chinese people to start using your service? Because that's what you need for like real scale to compete with whoever else that you're competing with in the UK. I'm not, I would like to hear more about their plans for that, really. But I'm quite interested in the fact that you can use it in New York taxis. You can use it in New York taxis. You could use it in the UK. You can use it globally. Mm. You know, maybe that is the global ubiquitous thing that we'll pay after in the first place. There you go. Well, uh, I imagine they're worth a lot more than we'll pay right now, right, in terms of, uh, in terms of the side. Um, actually, sort of um, connected to this story, it's uh, about contactless is, is well and truly continually on the rise in the UK. So this is the UK embraces contactless payments even more over on Finextra. So total UK contactless spending rose by nearly a third last year to $69 billion or uh, One World Pay, as it's uh, commonly referred to, <laughs> uh, with tap and pay now accounting for more than 40% of all card transactions. So 123 million uh, debit and credit cards are now contactless in the UK. That's just a stunning figure, isn't it, really? Um, so thanks to adoption on public transportation, which, to be honest with you, we will sort of talk about like a, a bit of an early rider for mm. a major change in geography. So, you know, we saw Oyster here and Octopus. Octopus? Mm, in, in Hong Kong, Hong Kong and uh, Gao Train in South Africa. And, you know, actually transportation and contactless payments always seems to be like a, a forerunner for mm. major payments disruption. But pretty impressive stuff. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, the, the transport thing is an interesting angle because I guess London as the capital is always kind of a little bit further ahead than anywhere else. But at least in Birmingham, it was only maybe a year ago that you could get on a bus and just use your debit card like that's not before that like you had to have cash or there was some weird like smart card that you had to top up mm. or something like that it's not so you, and Birmingham's the second biggest city it's not like some small like random place you can imagine <laughs> that uh, all small towns all smaller cities have been following suit only over the last 12 months which is probably where these figures are coming mm. from a lot of that um that's, that's definitely true. Like in Norwich, we haven't got buses yet. So uh, <laughs> the fact that you've got buses with contactless, you're just showing Futuristic. off. Yeah, exactly. It just goes to show how lazy humans really are, though. The fact that we massively value the ability just to tap it and go rather than that whole two seconds it took to put a pin number in. Uh, so, I mean, there's something brilliant about that, though. Like, it's all time-saving, isn't it? And, um, but it does sort of raise a question that you kind of have to have a bank account now. 
uh, to start traveling, to start buying in shops. You see shops that don't take cash. And there is something very excluding about if you don't have a bank account or you don't have ability to have a contactless card, you know, where does that leave you? So, you know, I really like it as a lazy consumer, um, but I think it raises a whole bunch of questions as well. Well, one thing that, w- that we are trying to do at, at Monzo is really help those people that haven't been able to access bank accounts and high street banks and things like that. We're doing a lot of work in that area. There's a lot of regulation that stops it from happening, but I think eventually we'll get there. And if we can, you know, and all the fintech companies can break down that barrier and then the high street banks follow, then really there should be no reason that, that people can't get a contactless card. And I, I do think, I do agree with what you said, especially when I go around Old Street and you see the little pop-ups that are like card only. Mm. What if somebody wants a donut and they don't have any cash? Like, but, you know it, I mean? but digital sort of beyond financial services creating that two three-tier society mm. you know if you have access to a laptop and a mobile phone then suddenly you're in a different world yeah below that if you have access to basic financial services and an address then suddenly you know amazon can deliver and all you know you, you're living that life if if you're below that line yeah you know you're living a hundred years ago yeah. you know compared to where where we are and that that tax on people who yeah. have to pay in cash yeah or or can't set up a direct debit you know is is quite something i mean it just pushes people down so well and we, we covered this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast actually in terms of like the move towards cashless and actually like the impact that it has actually on retailers so you know in being in a situation where actually there isn't enough cash moving around these places because everybody's using contactless or cards then actually just the uh, the expense for shops of moving cash around to ensure you've got change is is moving uh, you know planet organic uh, mm. downstairs from our office is completely cashless now so um, but what about a- Holland and Barrett <laughs> yes <laughs> what about them <laughs> <laughs> alright moving from spending cash to not having any so this is a story over on Fast Company which means that so it says that 21% of Americans have no savings, which is pretty scary, meaning uh, 21% of Americans aren't actually saving any money at all. A uh, new survey from Bankrate, which interviewed 1,003 respondents, weird number. Uh, I mean, like, somebody Bring was like, somebody was like, yeah, if we make this like an even number, people are going to not believe the survey. So like, just throw a three on the end of that thing. Uh, respondents via a telephone f- uh, survey found 21% of people aren't saving any money at all. Um, 16% report savings more than 15% of their yearly earnings. Uh, and according to the reports by uh, Career Builder, nearly 10% of those making $100,000 or more uh, say that they can't make ends meet. It's the poor rich, I tell you. It's a thing. But that, but that is a thing, isn't it? Because I, yeah. I do wonder in that, uh, you know, particularly in, in that economy, actually, whether $100,000 sounds like a lot of money. But actually, if you're being incentivized to, like, keep up with the Joneses and, you know, buy that new car and, you know, particularly in, a, in a, an environment where status is very important, then yeah. maybe $100,000 doesn't get you very far. Or um, if you live in an area with super high gentrification, like in San Francisco. That's true. So my, my cousin works at Google and uh, you know, he's been there for a while and he lives in Mountain View. And it wasn't until I sort of talked to him and spent a bit of time with him that I realized that actually a lot of people who start at Google and get a, make a lot more than your average people, they can't afford to live anywhere near Google. They can't live in San Francisco. They can't live in Mountain View. They can't even live in Oakland. Like I remember when Oakland was the hood. Like, <laughs> it's, and it's not now. It's super gentle. They're living 40 miles away. I'm getting my tiny little violin out here. <laughs> oh now, I mean, 100,000 puts you in the top 10% of earners in the US. Yeah. So the, the median is like, uh, what did it say, 60,000 uh, 60, or something? But the top 10% are 
see, over 90,000, top 1% over 250,000 dollars. So, you know, that's a it's a pretty good salary. So, so I guess the second point on the 100,000 was probably slightly different from the first point, right? If 20 uh, 21% of to- in total of Americans aren't saving any money, mm. that's like 21% of people who are going to completely screw the the system when they come to retiring down the line, right? Sure. Um, the, you know, 10% of those making 100,000 who can't make ends meet probably just need to fucking plan better, well, right? Well, especially because in that survey it said uh, 56% of people said they were in over their heads. <laughs> it's like, right. So that whole vulnerability, you know, we've got that consumer culture, we've got the live for now, FOMO. I'm seeing someone travel to, I don't know, somewhere interesting for spring Hawaii. break on, on Facebook. Yep. So I'm going to do that too. And suddenly that, that what everyone is doing means I need to spend the future. I don't really see any old people on Facebook. So, you know, <laughs> no, one, no one's struggling and retiring uh, on Instagram in my feed. So- <laughs> but then the well, counterpoint is like, if they genuinely in the 1,003 got a proper sample across you know, everybody and weighted that properly across all demographics. And actually, it's quite depressing news because it's actually saying that a lot of people, you know, are in financial distress or really just only just keeping their head above water. And maybe it's not the FOMO and not the Instagram. It's actually just the reality of trying to make ends meet in the place where, you know, um, food is expensive accommodation is expensive living is expensive it is. I would be um, I would be interested to see what the difference is in UK yeah. figures and how the NHS plays into that because a lot of regular folks I know in the US they have a you know they might have a small condition that requires regular medical uh, like uh, supplies that are not things that you can buy over the counter and it's costing them an extortion amount extortionate amount of money I mean um, you know, I, I had a partner that was American that had, I don't know, I think she broke her arm or something basic like that. And it cost her like 10 grand in medical bills with no something insurance. Something basic? That's like, well, no, but here, you, like, compared to here where you can just go to your A&E, like, like it's not like a debilitating lifelong illness. I mean, right. like, I mean I'll be upset. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Gonna... But it shouldn't cost you 10 grand. That's right? sure. Yeah. So, and imagine if you, I don't know, imagine if you have like diabetes or something, you yeah. get insulin mm. every day and you have to pay for it. You need it every day or you will die. So there was a survey, I've just looked it up in in the UK, 2,620 people, uh, and a quarter of British adults have no savings, and one in 10 admit that they spend more than they earn. So, you know, Mm. it's, there's a, Mm. there is a trend, there's a, you know, there's a big push or big question around whether consumer debt is the, is going to be the new bubble, the new thing that kind of pushes people along, especially in very low interest rate environments. Can I spend more than I earn? Yes, I can. Is it crippling now? No, but might it be in a few years? Yes. And do we think it's like financial problems generally, or is it lack of you know financial literacy? You know, what's the balance? I mean, if only we knew an American to talk to to find out. <laughs> and on that point, why don't we hear from Eleven FS America's MD Sam Moore? America, at least in my adult life, has never been a nation of what I would term consistent savers. We notoriously pursue the American dream of having a house with a driveway full of cars, perfect landscaping, um, a college degree, and fantastic vacations we take every year. The, the reality is, on average, though, we are terrible at saving money. It's a practice many of us put off until it's too late. Uh, part of this is obviously easy access to credit, but a significant contributor is simple willpower, or the lack thereof. Many Americans want it now and we're willing to sacrifice longer-term financial stability for near-term purchases and fun to be blunt 
And look, it wasn't always this way. U.S. families typically saved roughly 10% of their personal disposable income back in the 60s and 70s, according to the U.S. Federal Reserve. That percentage fell steadily during the 80s and 90s. It hit rock bottom at just under 2% around the 2008 financial collapse. Recession obviously had an effect on everybody. It helped nudge consumers back into savings. By about 2012, the savings rate peaked back up into double digits, but we quickly fell back into our poor habits here in the U.S. Why? Because Americans love, love, love debt, and we love, love, love credit cards. U.S. credit card debt hit $870 billion in 2018. Think about that. As of December 2018, U.S. credit card debt was at $870 billion. That's the largest amount ever. The mean credit card debt of U.S. households is around $5,700, and that's according to the U.S. Federal Reserve. Credit cards are the fourth largest portion of consumer debt in the U.S. Largest debt category, mortgages, so homes, then student loans, it's very unique to the U.S., auto debt, and then credit cards. So let's talk about student loans a little bit. There are more than 44 million student loan borrowers who collectively own about $1.5 trillion in student loan debt in the U.S., Average student loan debt for the class of 2016 is around $37,000. This is near and dear to my heart because I have a bunch of kids that are in or just about to start college. So look, it's imperative as both fintech founders and bankers that we help people, one, learn how to save. So education obviously needs to be there too. We need to make it as frictionless and easy to save without thinking about it. Hello, Acorns. Hello, Digit. I'm looking right at you. And three, we need to come up with creative social and banking apps to help pay down these debt categories. I love this quote by our good friend here at 11FS, John Hope Bryant. He's from founder of Operation Hope. He said, you can make money two ways, make more or spend less. And it really is that simple. We as leaders and innovators in the FI space need to focus on helping consumers embrace this simple concept by offering simple solutions and products whenever we can. Holy crap, 870 billion. That is impressive. That's roughly 13 world pays. Just 13 the- world pays. <laughs> uh, wow. But if there was ever a good segue to uh, to talking about Monzo's recent announcement, that was it. Like savings, tell us about it. Um, I think in general, not just with the savings that we want to do, but one thing that we've always been really focused on is is you could kind of peg it as financial education, but actually it should be delightful and fun and encourage people to keep an eye on things. And that's the approach that we have when we build everything. I mean, when I look at fintech apps and they don't show you your feed straight away, I just think you've got it all wrong, right? You need to encourage people to be always keeping an eye on what's happening. The right amount of information, not too dense and just in, in a fun way. You know, I always think that Monzo is more like Instagram than it is any bank because especially in terms of the amount of times people open the app every day. It's that stickiness, that delightfulness that we've been trying to build. And I think that is the approach to encourage people to save, to get out of debt. You know, things like the way that we built pots and the way that you have your targets going towards them and the images that we just mm. put out, all, all the things that we learned from that, that, that comes into what we'll do with savings and, and all that so stuff. So an announcement so, today yeah. around Monzo and Oak North joining forces to offer savings accounts. Oh, in cool. A, that's in out there. Good. Yes. So that's <laughs> out. 
um, easy access account offering 1%, six-month fixed term offering offering 1.3%, up to personal 12-month fixed rate ISA, uh, I think at uh, 1.5, somewhere around that. So it's interesting, again, that Tom's view of financial control panel and connecting into other providers, you know, does this lead, away, lead the way to an into integrating savings into day-to-day spend? Yeah, I would, I would say so. I would say so. I think people have a big mental block around savings. I think that's, that's why you get these figures that we see right now. There's really been no systems that encourage good financial health in savings. Uh, I think we're just start, sort of starting to see the tide turn towards that and people have different approaches to see how they can make that happen. That's not to say that ours is the right one. There could be ones that are way more effective than what we're doing and we'll learn from them and build that into what we're doing. But as long as everybody's kind of understanding what the problem is, then that's, that's hopefully where we can all collectively make a difference. What do you think, Caroline? I think all the nice stuff around savings is about nudging you in a nice direction. Maybe there's not enough doom. Like actually, you know, maybe in the 1960s, 1970s, people were really conscious about what was happening. You know, it was sort of the missile crisis. People were worried about like the threat of Cold War. There was a whole load of other sort of dynamics that perhaps people weren't as optimistic. Not enough fear in society, fear. that's what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we have become really sort of hedonistic and optimistic about and it just put it off till tomorrow. Um, and I think that, I think it's really nice that savings are kind of now making it easier to save and nudging to save but I think also that kind of responsibility the kind of the implications if you don't mm. kind of needs to come through a bit more as well I, I do worry though about the sort of the savings fintechs because the whole let's round up your coffee yep. and to put something aside or let's save a few pounds here or there like that's just not enough it, no. it's just not enough in order to make the impact that you're going yep, to need more doom. so in some <laughs> way like uh, is it like the candy floss it's great to just have a bite and you you know you feel great about it or or you take people who take vitamins uh, apparently eat less healthily because they feel like they're that's you know totally I'm being healthy <laughs> and totally I'm eating my, my, my thing you know is the is the the fintech sort of uh, roundup is that like the vitamin where mm. you feel like you're doing it but you've only saved 50 pounds this year and you're probably going to put it on holiday anyway and really you needed to save 10% of your income it's like that's quite a lot of pain and me not going out or not buying something yeah. versus you know it, are people feeling feeling the pain but that's cultural isn't it like beyond the nice day to day that is about you know 10% of savings it's a, it was a huge amount mm. um, and now 10% disposable income. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a big societal shift. Mm. I was feeling really positive about our locked pots when we launched them. Um, and then it kind of went wrong. <laughs> we, our customer support got overloaded by people asking us to unlock their pots early because that was the only way to unlock it. That was the friction that we had implemented. You have to contact customer support and they'll unlock it. And I felt like it was working well until that overload and then it just mm. it wasn't it wasn't scalable so now we've kind of unfortunately it's just like oh you can just unlock it yourself which is nowhere near enough friction to make it work and we're trying to figure out that middle ground of that so, so what do you think led to people wanting to needing to unlock running out of money yeah. well I know, but like, <laughs> so you think they not think about this or i mean do we need to do a survey with 2003 <laughs> people <laughs> Like what, what would be really interesting is if you Thanks. gave if you were able to to give uh, one of your friends permission to yeah. unlock it. Yeah. So actually, if you could give, if I could give yeah. Jason, if you gave me, yeah. I would not unlock it. <laughs> 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 I, I said a friend. <laughs> 
Before we take a quick break, we just wanted to remind you guys that we helped launch the Football Fintech League this week. The league starts on Friday, 22nd of March and features our very own 11FS, 11FC, as well as Curve, Funding Options, Go Cardless, Monzo, Receipt Bank, Revolut, and Starling. Uh, if you want to, head over to at Fintech League to follow all the action on Twitter. Did, did I hear that RBS are putting some remedies money into a five million prize for that? Or uh, This is unconfirmed. <laughs> we'll be back very shortly. This deal sets apart. That this economy is... We need to get down to business. Yeah. 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 Clearly the pressure is beginning. Business investment. Jobs. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets, on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. We'll be over in New York for Fintech Week from the 1st to the 5th of April. If you're over in New York City, uh, catch Uncle Sam hosting a Fintech Insider live show with the DIT and very, very special guests from Starling and TransferWise, to name a few. Uh, We'll be talking about the future of money on the 3rd of April at 6.30 over in the Altman building. We're also going to be partnering with Empire Startups for their seventh annual fintech conference over in New York as well on the 3rd of April. If you want to explore the agenda and check out getting a 15% discount on your tickets, just drop in the code 11FS. On with the show. We always tell you we love reading your reviews, so we wanted to shout out to the most recent ones that we've seen this last week. Thanks to Alpha Betcher, Dimerai, and Mona Kun123, I'm sure that's not your real name, who submitted their review, uh, reviews via iTunes. Thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts and keep the reviews coming. So Alpha Betcher said, working in the banking sector myself, I always love listening to industry experts cast their opinions on current trends. It makes my commute to and from work more bearable. Keep up the great work. And Daimarai said, if you're in the financial services or just want to really understand this amazing fintech space like I am, this is the podcast for you. Nice conversations. I'm not sure I'd ever describe it as that, but there you go. Conducted with industry experts with a genuine feel and the right amount of banter. Keep up the amazing work, 11FS team. Thanks very much. On with the show. All right. Next up, we have a story which is Grab grabs more market share in Southeast Asia. So over on Fedextra, we have Grab maps out their new product lines. So Grab Financial Group announces its Grow and Grab roadmap. Like, man, I said Alipay a lot. I'm saying Grow and Grab quite a lot in this section as well. So they're launching a SME lending and microinsurance for drivers in Singapore. So this is essentially Grab offering financial services to all of their uh, drivers in their ecosystem system, which is an amazingly sensible play, right? You know, this is a captive audience for these guys that they can offer all plethora of different things to. What do you guys think? 
Well, Caroline's the SME expert. She's also shaking her head. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about Grab Financial Group. Um, but it all sounds very sensible. If you've got a captive audience, then naturally you want to start expanding the service offers to them and start cross-selling, upselling more. And clearly, um, you know, micro-insurance and lending is the next step. Uh, Wikipedia says that they started with uh, 2014, 1.2 million downloads. Uh, they claimed in 2013 to be doing one booking every eight seconds or 10,000 a day. In November 2017, they reached a billion rides with 66 concurrent rides in one second across seven countries, occupying a, a 70, 97% market share in the third-party taxi hailing market and 72% in the private vehicle hailing market. It also claimed to have 2 million driving partners, 68 million app downloads, and 3.5 million daily rides. Whoa, 2, two million drivers? 2 million driving partners. Wow, yeah. that is insane. That is like a huge, huge thing. So across Southeast Asia, then, they're, if they start you know, releasing financial services, yeah. it's, it's going to be a, a major player. They're the, they're the Uber killer in Southeast Asia. L- literal Uber killer, not like literally. how people use Uber as a... <laughs> like, uh, what's interesting about their press release is like it goes back to what we were talking before and super apps and they've literally capitalized the word super app and the S and the A they're really making a claim for it they made us think yeah it's, it's a thing it's a thing it, it's an interesting cultural phenomenon that we we're not seeing it over here as much I wonder if if we've if that would even happen over here I feel like I feel like it's there's too much anti-competitive regulation over here for like one mm. company like that to start in one place and then quickly do like a million other things and take over. I mean, it's arguable, I guess, but it seems to be just accepted in Singapore and China and these places. And we've got and the Lyft, is- Lyft IPO this week as well, right? Ooh, Lyft. So, I love Lyft. Um, I mean, is that going to expand into a huge SME lending as well? I mean, they've got some insurance offers, but... I mean, given that there's a remedies fund going, then they probably should have a crack at it, shouldn't they? <laughs> Can they argue that is uh, an SME infrastructure technology play? Or <laughs> In the UK market, I'm not so sure. Not so much, no. <laughs> but it's one of those things where, you know, banking, payments, insurance, lending belongs at the point of need. It doesn't belong in the banking app. You know, you want to be doing lending for the thing that you want to buy. You want to be insured to do the thing that you're, you know, you want to be insured to doing. So if you're Grab, and this is a case of you're taking money through, uh, you know, for your taxi rides, you want that money now. You want to be insured now. Maybe you've had a bad week. So gig economy is, you know, it always has that up and down of feast and famine, and they want their drivers to stay working. So I think it's one of those things where... It's not like Grab says, we want to be a bank. It's that they've got this massive market of customers who also work for them, and they can offer profitable financial services to them that, uh, in a way that integrates just with what they're doing rather than saying, than leaving someone to say, well, I drive, now I don't have any money, now I need to go and find a bank, work out how much I need. No one wants to take those existing steps, those additional steps. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting how you're seeing more and more these sort of industry plays adding financial services to them you know you see the ones of um, property rental you know, very much adding payments adding lending into them and I heard a sort of ca- isn't a lot of the cannabis retailing business those sorts of areas also, I don't know is it, like, is well, it? well in the US it's very legal okay. um, but you know those are, a lot of that is a stack same stack right it's about how do you drive payments in the retail space mm. in again in a vertical or perhaps in beauty or yeah. you know I think it's a really interesting play well is it um, is it that you know big organisations kind of ossify around the business model whereas startups are actually 
actually continually looking for that next thing, especially if they're, you know, heavily VC backed. They're having to look for that next billion pounds or billion dollars in, t- in terms of the, the returns that they can make. So, you know, any organization that's created such a significant community has to monetize it in increasingly extreme ways. And, and like, as you say, like maybe financial services is just the, the slice that people put on this stuff. Yeah, who owns the customer, actually? So you've got the banks doing a, I'm going to do horizontally and mm-hmm. own this. But actually, maybe you have a stronger relationship with your you know, CRM provider or your um, you know, back office systems provider if you're a cannabis retailer. Well, I think it's the, it's, it, you know, it's the evolution. We've seen, you know, we talk to clients about there's this commodity product layer. There's the thing that you always do. We've digitized it. We still offer a loan. We still offer a credit card. You've got these intelligent services that are kind of built on top of that. Well, what are people trying to do with this and where does it fit and how do I manage my life? But then, then if you take that further, you're into these extended journeys and suddenly it's, well, do I want to go to a bank to ask about a, um, a mortgage or do I want to uh, go to Zoopla and say, well, what do I think I can afford? Show me the houses I can afford and then I'll go and see it. I'll click yes. You give me six mortgage providers. I'll click one of them. Job done. Like suddenly it's that, you know, we all go through these journeys where we switch from provider to provider and have to chain it together. And with APIs and open banking yeah. and everything else, suddenly those things are being chained and who owns those extended journeys mm. starts to get really interesting. Yeah. So I, I see that yeah. as the, like, you know, it leads in that direction. Didn't Uber launch a debit card recently for their drivers or something yeah. as well? So this is like a similar thing to what Grab Definitely. is trying to do with Grab Pay. I'm very sort of cynical about these closed loops, about these drivers and gig economies getting the money back into a financial system that's owned by the same people they're driving for. And at what point does that get exploited? And Uber be like, oh, you have to drive 600 people the next week. Otherwise, you can't pay back the loan that we gave you. And like, it's very... Certainly into workhouse territory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It gets very dark very quickly. <laughs> The Black Mirror episode will exactly. be <laughs> next week. I mean, the page on their internet intranet site is definitely not putting it in that way. But uh, yeah, yeah, I can see how it uh, how it can definitely kind of lead to those types of things. Uh, moving on, we next up we have a story over on Finextra, which is Standard Charter builds fintech bridge to match make with startups. So the bridge is an online portal designed to speed up the process for fintechs wanting to connect with the bank, moving from an initial application to selection with, within just three months Ooh, just three months just. Uh, so sc head of ventures uh we rec- also recognize that the best ideas can come from elsewhere not just from inside but also outside of the bank where we need to transform the bank sc ventures fintech bridge plays into our desire to continually look for new opportunities to collaborate with partners with outstanding creative talent across other footprints so this is a interesting thing i guess but is this essentially a procurement portal just sort of tarted up slightly i mean it's not exactly new i think we've got a lot of banks already doing this and i suppose from a kind of um, startup side you get a lot of approaches or something we do it fluidly um, from lots and lots of accelerators lots and lots of bank startups fintech scouts and fintech teams and ventures teams and i think you've got to be really careful about whether it's actually something that's going to go anywhere Mm. Um, because I think it's not just the remit of the you know how much can you get through to actually drive something commercially you can waste an awful lot of time a lot of effort and a lot of um, you know you spend a lot of time money on it without actually getting any results and so kind of proof of concept opportunity to test 
Uh, well, my, my reaction to the, all, all of this thing sometimes is just like, it sounds really fucking fancy, doesn't it? Like a startup <laughs> bridge when essentially just like info at standardcharter.com would have been fine in terms of like a mailbox for, hey, I'm interested in a partnership with you guys and I'm looking to do an interesting thing. Like, is there somebody to ma- and, you know, manage this mailbox? Yeah, you know? I'm fascinated by the prize they hold up is this guaranteed uh, proof of concept, yes. which, at, I mean, we know startup CEOs that uh, that say, like, if you put me in contact with a bank innovate or someone from Bank Innovation contacts me, I'm just not going to meet them because Bank Innovation are just the people that you don't want to work with because they always want the proof of concept and it just takes so much effort to make it all work. It never leads to anything in the business. So you end up being a proof of concept business yeah. where suddenly you've, you're doing 20 proof of concepts for 20 banks. They all say, that's great. We've learned a lot, but we're not going to take this forward. And suddenly you're sat there, you know, three years later having built proof of concepts for everyone. You have to say, we take that approach and then we, we just won't do them because I think unless you've got a sponsor from the business line, the actual decision maker with the P&L responsibility that actually wants to move a metric somewhere. Exactly. Um, you can waste a lot of time. I've seen that more and more. It's like you connect with a senior business person who thinks in a PL way yeah. and sees a way in which you drive her or his agenda. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you're, you, you've got something there. You have someone whose day job it is to go out and find interesting things and do POCs. Very little organizational juice to drive things. Yeah. Uh, that's an uphill battle to get the business to accept that. Well, we, we found that firsthand, right? You're like, exactly as you say, Jason, it's like, hi, I'm the innovation manager trying to do a thing. And it's like, does the business know? <laughs> do <laughs> does, they care? Yeah, does the business know? No, they don't. Okay, is this not value destroying for their P&L? Yes, it might be. And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so next, do you have budget? No. Okay. Yeah. Can so. you get them into this meeting? Well, not really. They're quite busy. Mm, uh, okay, <laughs> now I see how this is all going to play out. Exactly. Not good. I'd be very worried about being somebody with a creative vision and an idea and needing funding and getting into one of these situations. And then you find out that, I don't know, SC or whoever is completely the wrong company to take it to the next level. You're done. Like, you can't go anywhere after that. I've just given my idea to someone else. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next up, we have a story over on Finextra. This is NatWest launches female-only crowdfunding program. So NatWest is hoping to help close the entrepreneurship gender gap through the introduction of a female-only crowdfunding program. The bank has teamed up with Crowdfunder on the back of their Back Her Business initiative, inviting women to register their business ideas and seek funding from the crowd. Uh, through So though most of the funding will come from the crowd, the bank will also top up $1 million a year and will be offering 50% of an individual's fundraising target capped at £5,000 for some of the projects. What do you guys think about this? Well, I think ultimately anything that helps female entrepreneurship is a good thing. So I'm all for initiatives that support overall. And I saw some research, you know, on by Diversity VC in the VVCA a while ago that said, you know, that for every one pound of VC money, less than a penny uh, goes to all female founder teams. So there is still a massive problem around funding. Um, and anyone that's prepared to support it, support it with money in particular, I think that's a good thing. I do take issue with some things around, you know, uh, things that say it's about lack of confidence for women. Um, and I'm not always sure that's the case. I think that actually there's lots of evidence that show that women get asked different questions, that they get assessed in different ways, that if women pitch the same pitch as men, it's all blind trial, that actually more people fund men. Um, so I don't think it's always about confidence. I do think it's actually about, you know, 
the whole ecosystem that needs to be done something about it mm. i think my my wife would definitely say men are full of shit therefore they're better <laughs> at pitching things uh, like big ideas and that type of stuff like sarah's Sarah, a smart woman yeah she is i mean like sample size of me i think she's <laughs> she's, she's onto something so uh, but the evidence is like they've literally tested the same script yeah pitched by a man and pitched by a woman and then men get more funding really so uh, maybe so, maybe you know, we just, just need to get like thing, a, a ton of actors piece that uh, female founders can uh, can brief that are super smooth and smart who just they send out. They're actually the brains of the operation and they could be like Svengali behind the scenes. Or with we this. could change change the environment. Oh, I'm talking about, <laughs> I'm talking about like, now though. I'm talking about if, if you want to raise the money now, it's like changing the environment is going to take a while. I know we can't think that way, Jason. We've got to get more women. I think we've got a new business like, idea funding, here for agency. We've got more women like, um, in financing teams making their decisions you know taking the view and also i think training people on on bias and asking what kind of questions to ask and think about that but also what? women need to themselves mm. feel that they can start a business and I, take I th- that chance well I, I, and i think the a major part of this is is generally the people who are investing are men yeah. right so they're looking for more uh, uh reflective masculine tendencies in fact of aggression and like i'm gonna dominate the world and this <laughs> is gonna be the next that i'm getting uh, yeah i'm sorry i'm getting carried away nice. but like being in a situation where actually maybe the idea on this one is if more females are actually distributing the funds and, and i would hope that mm. natwest are actually putting uh, more females in charge of actually deciding where the investments are actually made that maybe that will lead to a, a better outcome in terms of the the distrib- uh, disbursements of these funds maybe we will see <laughs> all right I'm, con- uh, I'm confused about this bit though that says that crowdfunders will not get any equity stakes in the business oh really yeah that's a weird approach oh, donation and reward based yeah wow. like the perks but not the shares this is all like, like uh, so token, we're very confused you know, about this yeah, so like, like a kickstarter thing then mm. doing, is well, this sort of like kickstarter get- some of them you get like equity oh, yeah. yeah or like pseudo equity or at least just that thing that holds my camera that I really fancy having the idea of. But um, but no, it is an interesting one. They're sort of stripping some of these things back, aren't they, without necessarily giving the the full thing on it. But it, it does fascinate me. There's a whole like systemic problem. Where do you stop? Where do you stop pulling the thread? Like, where are the two or three places that you can? You know, is it about actually? You know. Um, uh, about really driving much more, as you say, like female-driven investment, which then you wouldn't have to run female sort of competitions. That that it, that it would it would change industry. I mean, one thing one thing that we noticed, especially in the Far East, there are so many like powerful senior women in Alipay, WeChat. Whenever we go to a conference, like the person speaking, you know, mm. t- tends to be a woman. And, and Africa, it's interesting. Actually, like, how does why is it there, and how does how does it all work? So. Well, I think this month was also the Rose Review on female entrepreneurship, which was published this month. So that's the one that Alison Rose did. And I think um, they had three main opportunities that they wanted to help female entrepreneurs. So, yeah, definitely increasing the funding was one of them. And then this sort of greater family care and support and making entrepreneurship more accessible for women, um, again, through mentors and networks. You know, I, I kind of, to some extent, I feel if you're going to write a report on female entrepreneurship, why wouldn't you ask a female entrepreneur? Um, to do it you know if you're going to, if you want a banking female entrepreneur why wouldn't you ask Anne Bowden or you know someone but aside from that I think you know they did a lot of research here um, and and clearly you know funding is one of the part of the problem but perhaps it's also the ecosystem piece around around care support mentorship as well yeah well you know we've had Alison on the on the podcast 
a bunch of times in the past, she's super passionate about sort of changing these things. And if this is something she's sort of looking to do to try and make a bit of a difference, then um, I'm pretty sure she's not wanted to fail at this stuff. So let's see what comes from this. Okay, and finally, we have a story over on Bloomberg. So this is German Bank lets clients vote on dress code. Clearly the best story of <laughs> oh, Goodness me. Uh, I feel this is a visual gag as much as anything else that's, that's about to happen. So, Which is always good for podcasts, by the way. I yeah. Know, yeah. So Frankfurter Spark Casey. I'm looking at producer Laura. Sparkassa. Sparkassa. Okay, we'll go with Sparkassa. Uh, a Frankfurt-based bank with 19 billion euros, so that's $22 billion for those over in the US with no savings, uh, in assets is... How many world pays is that? <laughs> half a world pay. Yeah, it's half a world No, it's... Yeah, it's half a world <laughs> yeah. pay. Um, it, so it's setting up a survey over on its terminals in some of its branches, asking clients to vote on how its advisors should dress. Um, so there was three potential choices of outfit that was outlined, which I'll be honest, basically go from very, very smart to smarter than I dress still. Um, so, you know, being in a situation where it's like suit, tie, pocket, square, <laughs> chinos and, and, and uh, a jacket to like denim where the two people wearing, he's wearing denim. He's wearing trainers though. They, yeah, he is. But they both feel, they both look very uncomfortable do. in denim, don't yeah. they? I, I think this this whole idea of basically being able to like pick your advisor seems a bit weird, doesn't it? You know, I wonder if they, they'll start doing it before meetings. It's like, okay, you've got an appointment with your mortgage advisor. How, how, like, how would you like them to dress? Yeah, how casual would you like them? <laughs> hat or no hat. Exactly. Like, where does this end? Like, would you like a, a male advisor? Like, it's starting to get, it's like Tinder for banking. This is <laughs> Swipe left, swipe right. Exactly, yeah. I'd like them this age range and uh, their sporting interests should be soccer and it's very confusing. But they just don't go extreme enough for me. I mean, they really right. should have like proper. If, if you're going to a bank, I want a proper Mary Poppins style banker dress. I want to see the bowler hat. <laughs> I want to see the watch chain. I want three piece suit. Yeah. That's what I'm looking like, for. Especially like, on women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> like, like, what is the Mary Poppins? I guess they weren't any bankers. Yeah, back then. <laughs> Back at Mary Poppins days, the Please were no Twitter don't, don't hound me for yeah. this. <laughs> I support this idea if the next step is letting people pick the way the branch looks. Yes. There's some ideas there. Al- Lots although, of neon and smoke. Although this does, yeah. we know this leads to ba- uh, boaty m- boat face. And uh, <laughs> ultimately, that <laughs> this will lead to the uh, the most comedic outcome possible. I do think the dress code, like they, my, I was going to say my favourite, but my only story on dress code um, was that one about Mary Barra at General Motors so she apparently changed the dress code which was like reams and reams of policy just to two words which was dress appropriately and I think that just goes to culture so much doesn't it you kind of shows you trust your people it kind of shows you take them as adults and you're willing to kind of give them a sense that actually I trust you to dress appropriately you don't need a like huge dress code and you certainly do need a vote that ends up looking like this I mean well there are there are some things that should go to a public vote and some things that shouldn't and I think I won't expand on that at this point hmm <laughs> <laughs> that seems very apt to this week doesn't it and on that note this wraps up this week's new show thank you so much to all of our guests where can people find out a little bit more about you so Caroline uh, I'm at C Plum P-L-U-M-B or at Fluidly very good. And Simon? Uh, at SBKCRN on Twitter or just the Monzo Forum. I spend too much time there. Very good. Mr. Bates? Uh, at Jason Bates on Twitter. 
Very good. And as for me, you can find me at David Breer over on Twitter. Um, what do you guys think of this show? Oh, goodness me. It's always fun to hear. What you would like us to do. Yeah. I mean, like the first story, you can vote on what we'll wear. We'll do anything. Adds another 10,000 listeners. Fine. Let us know over at Twitter on at Fintech Insiders. And don't forget, if you love the show, we please, please, please leave us one of those reviews and we'll get Mr. Bates to read it out again. Uh, thanks to all those who have already done it. And we really, really love reading those reviews. Um, thanks also to everybody who got involved via email and Twitter following last week's request to find out why the Barclays ATM on Warwick University campus gives out coins. Turns out it's just for the laundrette. Who knew? Thanks for listening, guys. Goodbye.